Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Today is a particularly depressing subject, but I am never depressed when I am talking with Brandon Weikert because he is so smart, so informed, and gives me a lot of hope that there are good voices out there trying to spread common sense and good knowledge. Brandon Weikert, for those who are unaware, is a geopolitical analyst and a dear friend of the show. I think this is his third time coming on to Timeless. He is a subject matter expert for the U.S. Department of the Air Force and an energy analyst at the-pipeline.com. He is the author of three books, the aforementioned book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. He also wrote Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. These are three books which, fortunately for selling purposes, but unfortunately for our civilization, are now more relevant than ever. Hi, Brandon. Welcome back to Timeless. Hello, thanks for having me, and thanks for that that wonderful intro. I keep telling people it's very unfortunate that my books keep being so relevant. I'd rather be obscure and not have the horrors that we're having to live through right now, but uh, I will take the silver lining of being relevant yet again. Yes, as, as I said, it's, it's probably great for your selling purposes, <laughs> but I... I I also want to shout out to the audience your Twitter, which is at We the Brandon. Is that right? Do I have the the handle correct? It is. That's correct. It is so funny, and it's it's also just a great way to be informed. But you keep posting passages from your book, specifically the Shadow War, and I've read the book, so I know how relevant and and detailed it is. But every passage you post, I'm like, my gosh, this is so so relevant yeah. now more than ever. So I'm delighted to to have you on and talk about this with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that Twitter gets me in trouble sometimes. I know it does. So <laughs> I, that's what I love about it. I love seeing when you get in trouble. But, uh, oh gosh, Brandon recently was posting such funny stuff about uh, the the depressing uh, event of Xi Jinping getting a hero's welcome in San Francisco. Gavin Newsom kicking out all the homeless people for the communist dictator. Anyway, if you want some levity and also great information, go to at we the Brandon. So I just want to read aloud quickly some of the headings of your chapters. Let's look. You have you have 32 chapters in this book. on. Yeah, Iran. but they're short. They're blessedly short. They are short. And I really like that about your book because I lose – I have a short attention span. And so I like every chapter to be focused. So I, so I think that's great. But to, again, just to, to, to show how relevant your book is, here are some of the, the names of the chapters. Another Intifada with Israel. That's chapter three. Hello. Particularly relevant. Um, why peace with Iran won't work. The truth about the 1953 coup in Iran. Islamism ascendant in modern Iran. Uh, Car- Carter's plot to overthrow the Shah. I bet uh, Jimmy Carter is uh, is uh, regretting now turning his back on the Shah. <laughs> 444 days of hell about the hostage crisis. Manipulating the gentle American giant. I could go on and on. Iran cyber war. See, I, I, I have to go on and on. Death to America. History repeats. Carter, Obama, and Biden. This is the book to understand the Islamo-fascist moment. So let's start here, Brandon, with this the second chapter, which I didn't read aloud. It's called A Weak Iran is Just as Dangerous as a Strong One. Is Iran weak right now? 
Yeah, so that's the big debate that's been playing out for the last several years. Actually, it started playing out when I was in government. Um, a lot of military guys that I would go back and forth with, they would say, actually, Iran's very weak. Um, and I don't believe they're as weak as some of our official people are saying. But regardless, whether they are really that weak or if they are strong, the fact of the matter is, if they are weak, that actually makes them more desperate. It actually makes them, you know, a caged animal or a, an animal up against a wall is the most deadly kind of uh, animal. And I was speaking with a Saudi official in 2019. Actually, this was one of the events that started me writing the book in 2019 was when I began writing the rough draft. Um, the Saudi official used the term to describe Iran as a paper tiger with steel claws. And as I add on in the book, right now those steel claws are extended and they come in the form of their various terrorist proxies arrayed around the world. Mm. Yes, this is a, a difficult thing to kind of assess right now, not just with regard to Iran, but also with regard to Russia and China. You know, people like Condoleezza Rice have been dubbing those three as the new axis of evil. And sometimes I look at those three countries and I think they're incredibly strong, but also, and especially with what we're seeing with China, with the their economic problems, it seems that respectively, those three in some ways are getting weaker, and that could perhaps explain some of their their actions. Yes, right, because obviously in the case of China, Russia, and Iran, the worse things get economically at home, the more likely they are to resort to military force abroad as a means of sort of getting people distracted at, in their home front from those deteriorating economic conditions and to rally people around the flag and the regime. In uh, Russia, that has happened already. The people are rallying around Putin, as much to our chagrin. Uh, in China, it's happening to some degree. China, of course, has a lot more maneuvering room as the second largest economy in GDP terms. Um, and in Iran, we've already seen they've been weathering these protests since 2020. Every year, it seems like we're told Iran's going to fall, and yet that regime clings on, and that's because the use of force is so prolific in that regime, and they're backed up by China and Russia, as well as North Korea and even NATO member Turkey. So they're not going away on their own. It's going to require some coordination on the part of the U.S. and its allies in the region to contain Iran and squeeze it, as was happening under the Trump administration. Of course, that was done away with the day that Joe Biden took office. I'd also like to add, in addition to those actors, which you say are propping up Iran, we, the United States, seem yes. to be... Perhaps inadvertently, although that may be a, a kind way to say it, propping up Iran with a recent transference of $10 billion more dollars to the regime. I swear to God, when I saw that in the newspaper, I, 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 for a minute, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was an error. I, I, I couldn't right. believe that, that, that all of that was happening. So before we get to that, and we, we, will, yeah. we will be talking about that $10 billion, what, what it means, how, you know, is it transferred? Is it unfrozen? Is it distributed? Let's just first take a pause and assess what is the political situation right now in Iran and why are they such a formidable threat that you decided to write a book about? Yeah. Well, the political situation in Iran is very tenuous for the regime. 
every few years now, they've had to contend with increasing numbers of internal resistance to their regime. It got really bad, and I, I document this in that second chapter. It got really bad during COVID. So you had the, the added problem of COVID spreading and the government there not being able to do anything about it. And then you had all the already existing economic problems kind of congealing to begin what have been multi-year-long protests. The problem is the protests are diffuse. They tend to be spread out among various regions. They don't seem to have a central kind of organizational uh, capacity. So basically the regime can focus its efforts on containing and busting up the, the, the resistance whenever it pops up in whichever part of the country, which is why the regime hasn't been overthrown. The regime is well organized. They have a very nasty secret police and they're able to sort of contain the problem. And then you have the added issue of a lot of the, the people in Iran, I don't believe, think that they can rely on the West to have their back if they did ever decide to mount a full-blown revolution against the regime in Iran. This, we saw this in 2009. Uh, the, the young people of Iran, particularly in the cities, started in the green, it was called the Green Revolution or the Green Movement. They tried to overthrow what they thought was a corrupt uh, theocracy. And ultimately, the at that point, the newly elected Obama administration not only chose to ignore those protests, they also were actively working with the regime uh, to sort of, you know, contain and, and mitigate the threat to the regime that those protests pose. And that pattern has played out over the course of many years. And so now the people of Iran, I think, are tired. Uh, they don't like their government, but they sort of feel like they're stuck. And so there's a lot of uh, unrest, but that unrest is not metastasizing or materializing into the kind of threat to the regime that we in the West would need it to be for us to take our foot off the gas or to feel safe. Mm. That's a really good and sad point about how people in Iran are not confident that the West would back them if they were to initiate a revolution because they saw in 1979 that we turned our back on the Shah. And they have seen successively with disasters like Afghanistan that even when we do pledge our support, we tend to get tired and leave and don't follow through on our promises. And I think that was something you and I spoke about, I think, the second time I was on the show. People need to realize how significant the way we pulled out of Afghanistan was. Yes. That was sort of year zero for the new decade. Um, everybody thinks COVID was, and in some respects, COVID had a part in that. But the real year zero for American power and prestige was the end of our mission in Afghanistan. It wasn't that we ne we didn't need to leave. We, sh we were going to need to leave eventually. It was how we left. It was the way in which the Biden administration bungled every aspect of it. But there's two things in that part of the world you don't want to be seen as, weak and incompetent. And we <laughs> reaffirmed the image of those two things as being part and parcel of the American experience in the Middle East. And that has rippled out not just in the region, but that was a trigger for Putin invading Ukraine. That's been a trigger for China doing what they're doing against Taiwan. And that was certainly a trigger for Iran increasing its terrorist activities in the wider Middle East. Hmm. That is true. We have what were the two words incompetent and weak? Yes. Yeah, that, those have been the two words to characterize the, the Biden administration. I would sadly. say so. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. 
Okay, so so we understand the political situation in Iran, that obviously there's a lot of unrest, especially this proliferated after the murder of Masa Amini uh, in September of 2022. They, you know, temporarily disbanded the morality police. They acted like they were willing to give some concessions. But really, there's not a, a strong, unified, robust or plausible threat to the Iranian regime. Okay. Right. Understood. So where do they rank geopolitically? You and I agree, and we've talked about it on the show when we were talking about biohacked, that China is the main guy in town geopolitically, right. obviously. But right. and, and Russia is China's accomplice and Iran is China's accomplice. But does Iran kind of stand on its own as not on par, but kind of similarly – a, a, a robust threat as China, or are they kind of just China's, uh, again, accomplice in yeah. China's hegemonic new world order? Right. That's an excellent question. So before the, probably before the late 2010s, mm -hmm. um, I would say that Iran was very much acting on its own, which is why it wasn't very successful. And the, the objective for Iran's leaders since 1979 has been to diminish America's military presence in the Middle East so that they can then assert their dominance over the Sunnis and the Israelis. Okay, so they've not been able to do that on their own as hard as they've tried. They can be a nuisance, but they need help. And so probably the 2016-ish period is when Iran really started closely coordinating with the Chinese as well as the Russians to basically form this sort of anti-American access of autocrats in Eurasia to push American power out of this geostrategically vital region that we call the Middle East. And because they've now married very closely their power to China and also Russia, but really China, um, they are now in Iran able to really punch above their weight. And that is why their threat is so serious now, because they're no longer acting alone and only in the region. Their threat is now truly global. Their reach through their terrorist proxies is truly global. And also they have the added protection and the added uh, economic advantages of being close with the second largest economy in the world in China, as well as one of the most powerful militaries in the world in Russia. Mm. Yes. Okay. So, you know, obviously in setting the scene for this episode, I talked about the, the threat of international Islamofascism, and we're going to get to that, and I still hold that to, to be true. However, it seems like there's this Islamofascism is within a greater context of just anti-Western fascism, yeah. you know, because China and, and Russia are are supplying Iran. I wrote about this, as you know, in the Epic Times. Yes. And, you know, China give, is the number one biggest oil buyer of, of Iranian oil. China gives a lot of financial um, help to Iran, rebuilding the Ayatollah Khomeini International Airport in Tehran, send, signing all of these economic agreements with Iran. China or Russia gives weapons to Iran as Iran helps Russia yep. with drones and the war in Ukraine. Okay, so like like the three of them, for lack of a better term, are kind of besties right now, yep. helping each other spread evil. But my point is it's not just Islamo-fascist evil. It's that they're all kind of partners in this greater web of a vehemently anti-Western evil. Yes. And in, in the yep. case of Iran, it's Islamo-fascist. But in the case of, of Russia and China, it's, it's a different flavor. But the through line is that it's vehemently anti-Western. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct. I tell this to people at DIA. I tell this to people in the agency. Uh, or in the U.S. military when I consult regularly, and they call me a conspiracy theorist. You know, they tell me that, you know, this is, they're not all working together. Come on, that's ridiculous. And I hate to tell this to your audience, but our intelligence services, for the most part, as a whole are not on top of this. They are working together. China is coordinating a loose but growing coalition in Eurasia of fellow Eurasian autocracies, of which Iran is one, um, and they are pooling their resources together to push American power beyond Eurasia and back into the Western Hemisphere. That is the goal, and Iran is a key conduit in this ultimate Chinese plot to usurp the Americans as the global power, certainly as the dominant power in Eurasia. Um, and Islamofascism, that's, I think it was Norman Perduritz or Bernard Lewis, who one of those two came up with that. Um, actually, if you look at the structure specifically of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Shiite variant of Islamofascism, it's actually modeled very closely on Lenin's Bolshevik movement. And in my opinion, Iran operates a lot like the early proto-Soviet uh, Union did. Instead of trying to spread the Red Revolution, though, they want to spread the Green Revolution of Shia Islamism. And there's a lot of similarities between Islamism as a movement, as a political ideology, and the ideologies that dominate uh, China as well as Russia, uh, in fact, if you look at the Islamism, if you look at what they talk about, they talk about um, domestic programs that sound an awful lot like the socialized or even communistic domestic programs of countries like China and Russia. And so there is a natural sort of understanding, not to mention the fact that historically China and Russia, going back hundreds of years, have had very close relations, uh, historically speaking. And the Russians, of course, going back to the Cold War, even before the Cold War with the Tsar, have had many interactions with the old Persian Empire under the Shah and then, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the current uh, group, the communist group in, in uh, uh, the Soviet Union, and then now today with Putin. Um, and so um, and when I say the Shah, I mean the Shah's father, uh, because, of course, the Shah for who was pro-American, hated the Soviets, but his father in the 1910s and 20s was actually somewhat friendly with, with the uh, early Soviet Union. Mm, interesting. You know, as you were speaking, I had this thought that, you know, right now, obviously, China, Russia, and Iran are unified, as I say very inarticulately. They're besties in, in their trying to support one another in their, their global crusade of, of anti-Western evil. But... If we examine those three, Russia, to me, doesn't seem to be as globally oriented as Iran and China are. You know, obviously, Putin invaded Ukraine, and some can say, well, what do you mean? That, that, is, that is very, you know, globally oriented. But really what Putin, to me, and the evidence indicates is that he's trying to reclaim what he views as, quote unquote, lost Russian territory and just kind of reestablish the, the, the glory that they perceived right. that they had under the Soviet Union. So, yes, in some ways that's global, but it's really pretty like Russia based. China... Yeah. Certainly wants to to mm -hmm. assert its global hegemonic order, 
But and Iran wants to do that too, but in a Islamo fascist way. They want yeah. to bring about a Shiite uh, caliphate, really, that yeah. spreads all across the, the Middle East again. And so right. right now, these three are accomplices, they're besties, they're working together. But there's gonna hopefully be a problem going forward where the Iranian global desire for a, a, a Shiite caliphate is going to conflict with the Chinese global desire of a China-centered global hegemonic order. I don't think it will. You um, don't really. The, no. the the first The first reason is, and I think I mentioned it in that second chapter we were talking about. There was a four hundred billion dollar multi year deal that was signed in twenty twenty between the People's Republic of China and the Islamic Republic of Iran, which basically ceded over a large portion of Iran's oil rights in their own country to the Chinese. In right. fact, that deal allows for Chinese security personnel to be moved in large numbers into Iran to be permanently stationed around those oil refineries. Um, many people in the Iranian government did not like this deal. In fact, I quoted uh, there was an Iranian publication uh, that actually published in Iran, they, they were basically saying that it looks like the mullahs have allowed for Iran to become a colony of a new imperial power in China. However, those people writing these negative reviews of this deal are not the people who will ever be allowed anywhere near, near real power in Iran. The mullahs and the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, they're the real power bases in Iran, and they are all getting rich from doing business, from basically allowing Iran to become a new satellite of China, and they are happy to do so because they think that China is the new the new power that will supplant the U.S. in the long run. But they also think China can protect them on the world stage. And China will allow for them to basically become the dominant power in the Middle East because they are a subsidiary of China, and China would be fine with letting that happen. Um, and I think on some level that's how it's going to play out because Iran ultimately is never going to be able to be a global dominant power. But they can be a regional powerhouse, much greater than they currently are, if the board in the Middle East is rearranged in such a way that the Saudis are no longer a real factor and the Israelis are wiped out. And I think that's what they're ultimately moving toward with this new intifada against Israel. They want to annihilate the Jews of Israel. That is a fact. And they want to do that because they view not only it in religious terms, but they also view it in geopolitical terms. Israel, in their mind, is an extension of the U.S. You roll back the Israelis, you roll back America's power projection into that region. Mm. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Hey. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It's a brilliant analysis. I, I think you're totally right that, that, that China has these various kind of cat's paws. Like, yes. you know, there's, there's, there's Russia and they're supporting wreaking havoc in that part of the world. There's Iran, and you're totally right that Iran, basically, I mean, almost every country at this point, I know this sounds dramatic, is kind of a satellite state of China. Including in increasingly respects, our own. Are. Oh, I was right. about to say, including yeah. our own. And Particularly so, California. I oh, mean, it's basically a special administrative region of China. Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. It's it's <laughs> it's sickening. But but okay. So so China is you know supporting Putin wreaking havoc in that part of the world, supporting Iran and wreaking havoc in the Middle East. You know they don't they don't need to in, invade the United States or do anything more because they've right. they've got you know our our leaders bought off. They've got fentanyl pouring through the border. They've got the spy base on Cuba. They've got the farmland. So I, I think this is a really important point for people to understand. And I know that the the kind of focus on this episode, or at least I intended the focus of this episode to be on Islamofascism, but that's kind of one of the many hot threats that China yeah. is stoking around the world. And again, yeah. the through line is that China is the top dog. China's pulling the strings and it's vehemently anti-Western. There's a quote from the Game of Thrones books and, mo- and the show, chaos is a ladder. And for the, for the people at the bottom of the ladder, chaos can actually, if you know how to manipulate it, can actually allow for somebody on the bottom to climb their way to the top. Mm. And that is precisely the insurgent mindset. That is also the specific mindset of the regime in China. They want to create as much chaos globally that it dis, uh, disturbs the order, that it stretches America to its breaking point, which it is, and then that allows for them to basically flip the script, flip the situation, and allow for them to come out on top without really ever firing a shot. And that's exactly what's playing out right now. You know what is so eerily brilliant about China and their strategy is that they are doing something that I don't think I've ever seen another world power do to the same extent. And that is they assert and make possible their global hegemonic order by making, quote unquote, friends with their enemies. And they have seen the how how terribly the Vietnam War went for the United States. They saw how terribly the 1979 invasion of Afghanistan went for the Soviets. They saw how terribly the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan again went for us. And so they look at that and they go, huh, invading countries to try to get control of them sometimes works, but a lot of the times doesn't. Why don't we act like we're friends with these people, come in, say, hey, we're going to give you a railroad. We're going to industrialize your airport. We're going to buy your oil. We're going to set up Confucius Institutes. We're going to, you know, set up these bio labs. And then before you even realize it, your friends actually have you by the throat and they control you. Perfect. Perfectly right. And uh, that's exactly what they're doing. And it's interesting how they're bringing along, as you note, these seemingly disparate or estranged groups like the Russians, who are not natural friends of China at all, historically yes. speaking, as well as Iran. Uh, while the Iranians, like I said, have had centuries of good trading relations with various Chinese regimes, the fact is they, too, you would think, would not have a close relationship. But China is able to bring these groups along with them with the promise of money as well as the promise of protection. They operate a lot like a mafia 
uh, family does, which the Chinese government does. And uh, these other regimes are happy to do that because they all share an enemy. Um, it's sort of like um, the Injustice League in the old comics, the DC comics. You know, these were villains who wouldn't get along, but they all hated Batman or they all hated, you know, the villain, the, the heroes of the DC world. So they would get together and they'd put aside their differences. That's exactly what um, Eurasian powers are doing. In some degree, it's also what I mean, what we're looking at is a is could be a, a replay of the Peloponnesian War in ancient Greece. Uh, in which you had democratic Athens that was ascendant in this great empire, but was viewed with disdain and distrust by more conservative authoritarian militaristic powers uh, like Sparta. And Sparta built a anti-democratic coalition of maybe weaker on their own city-states, but when combined with Sparta and the group that they were building, were able to ultimately overcome the potency of the Athenian democracy so that could be what China's doing on a grander scale with America in the role of Athens today. Hmm. Okay, so now that we understand the role of China in stoking this Islamofascism as one of their kind of uh, pots of water on the stove, right. <laughs> uh, right. using that as kind of a, a proxy to attain their, again, global anti-Western China-centered hegemonic order. Let's zoom in on this Islamofascism yeah. and what it what it looks like, what what it's about. And in the introduction, as you know, I said that Iran is at the center. And I want yes. to tell you why I said Iran is at the center, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong <laughs> or sure. if I'm missing some points of my analysis. To me, Iran appears to be the most unified in their Islamofascism, in both practicing it and exporting it. If you look, if you look at you know Afghanistan, obviously there are many countries in the Middle East with a leadership and a population which are Islamofascist. But mm -hmm. Afghanistan with the Taliban, yeah, they're the epitome of Islamofascism, but it's kind of internal at least now, it seems to me, and again, jump in if at any point I'm wrong and, and correct me. Right now, it seems sort of internally focused. Iraq is basically a client state of Iran, so I'm going right. to leave Iraq off the list. Syria has its own civil war right now, so they're kind of off the list because they're occupied. And the government of Syria is a client of Iran as well. Exactly. Very important point. You know, Jordan is kind of lukewarm. Egypt is kind of lukewarm. Mm -hmm. We've got Turkey, which we can discuss, which has a very incensed, as I wrote in um, The American Mind, Sunni Muslim <laughs> population, which is vehemently anti-Israel and uh, sort of um, glorifying and wanting to partake in this Islamofascism. But Erdogan right now is kind of playing both sides of both the West and the non-West. So looking at all of these different countries in which there are elements of, of this radical Islam, very potent elements indeed, Iran, again, seems to be the most unified and the most globally oriented in looking and exporting and really bringing about that Islamofascism. Is that fair? I think you're completely correct, um, and I think the reason for that is in the Sunni Arab world, uh, we have a lot of governments like Saudi Arabia's government presently who are at least they lean toward America. They may not be pro-American, but right. they lean toward America. Now, their populations may be Islamist or friendly to the Islamist movement, but the governments there try to do what they can to police that element, whereas in Iran – we actually kicked out the Shah, and I, I'm using that term right because a lot of people don't realize Jimmy Carter's hand 
in helping to overthrow the Shah in 1979. We pushed out somebody who may have been autocratic, may have been a human rights abuser, but he was pro-American and he was modernizing his country in a way that would have eventually allowed for some incipient form of democracy to arise. But Carter killed that experiment by overthrowing the Shah, encouraging the Grand Ayatollah who was in uh, exile in Paris at the time, encouraging him to go into Tehran and take over the revolution in the streets. Carter believed that he could work with the Ayatollah. Carter believed that the Ayatollah was a man of faith just like him, and therefore they would get along because they may have different faiths, but they believed in the same God. And of course, theologically, that was not true. Um, But but that's what Carter believed, and Carter also believed that the Islamist movement in the wider region would be a check against Soviet communism. It's one of the reasons he was supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Well, the problem with that is we then took a guy, the Grand Ayatollah, who was the father of Shia Islamism, and we put him in charge. And then he immediately turned on us, and he immediately began going after the unbelievers along with the communists, Um, And so you're right. That is the reason we have such a centralized threat of Islamism ideologically in Iran. And and it's more dispersed throughout the Sunni Arab world because the governments of the Sunni Arab world, for the most part, are not really pro-Islamism. They're afraid of Islamism and they're more friendly to Americans. But that's not the case in Iran. The official organs of Iran's government are pro-Islamism and they're anti-American. Can you define quickly Islamism and Islamofascism? Sure. Well, they're interchangeable. I like Islamism. I think it's a little bit shorter um, because I also (laughs) definitely shorter. (laughs) I also think that. And and by the way, I think it was Norman Kruderitz who came up with Islamofascism. He's not wrong. But I actually think when you say Islamofascism, you cut out the relationship also to communism. Maybe not in terms of the atheism, obviously, but in terms of the way that they operate. And in many of their domestic, social, and political programs, they're very similar. Um, I had a professor in my master's program, Joshua Moravchik, one of my my favorite professors. He wrote a book called Heaven on Earth, and it was all about the the tangled web uh, of these different isms. And he included Islamism as being part of that overall family of isms. Islamism is basically politicized Islam. It is basically uh, 1920, I think, four or eight. Um, Hassan al-Banna created the Muslim Brotherhood. There was a man named Saeed Qutb who was one of the great intellectual godfathers of this movement. Basically, they wanted to create a pure form of Islam uh, in the region, in the greater Middle East, because they, were, they, were, they believed that the Americans and the West had propped up apostate regimes in the land of Mohammed, and they wanted to overthrow those regimes. And so they basically took a lot of tenets of fascism, communism, and they fused it to the theological beliefs of Islam, and they created this political ideology of Islamism. And very interestingly, there's been a misconception, and I talk about this in the book, there's been a misconception for years in academia as well as in the counterterrorism community that Shia Islamism and Sunni Islamism of the kind that bin Laden and ISIS practice, these are two separate things. But in fact, there is an ideological connection between the two of them because there was a man, like I said, Saeed Qutb, who was this very key founding member intellectually of Islamism for the Sunni world, he also tutored a man named Nafab Safavi. 
And Nafab Safavi was one of the leading young up-and-coming clerics in Iran um, in the 1950s. He was best friends with Ayatollah Khomeini as a young man. And Nafab Safavi brought Saeed Qutub's Islamist ideas over to the Shiite context of mm. Iran. And then he imbued those beliefs into his best friend, uh, Khomeini, who was a moderate in his youth. But when the Shah had Nafab Safavi hanged for insurrectionist activities, that set Khomeini off and set Khomeini on the path of embracing Islamism for the Shiite world. But they are connected in ways that many experts refuse to acknowledge. Hmm. Well, clearly they are connected because Iran, which is a Shiite fundamentalist state, has no problem supporting Hezbollah and Hamas, which are Sunni, you know. Well, Hezbollah is Shiite as well, but Hamas, you're correct, as well as Fatah. Don't forget about Fatah. You're right. Oh, I didn't realize. I I thought that that Hezbollah was Sunni. Thank thank you for... No, they're Lebanese Shiite. Mm, Thank you for clarifying. So, so yes, clearly there's a connection. I mean, I often wonder, is there going to be a certain point at which Iran or other Sh- Shiite groups are going to not want to work with Sunni groups? But honestly, as long as they they have such a shared goal of undermining the West and specifically eradicating Israel, that it seems like they can transcend their sectarian differences in the name of this greater goal. Well, and that's the key. And that's why I bring up the Nafab Safavi connection, because – that was a key sort of transference of ideas from the Sunni world to the Shiite world. And it's, it, it's very dominant in Iran. Um, and I would argue that they're going to continue working together. They have a shared you know, vision of knocking the Americans and the West out of their, their backyard and reestablishing the caliphate, which has not existed since the Ottoman Empire collapsed in 1923. Um, and I think it should also be noted um, that the, um, the Iranians have no compunction about working along with Hamas and Fatah, so long as Hamas and Fatah swear felty to taking orders from the Iranians, which they have so far. And there's an, another added aspect here. I was on another podcast about two weeks ago with, a form, with the former CIA head of the uh, bin Laden unit. And um, I said to him, I said, you know, in my opinion, um, bin Laden actually won the global war on terror from a strategic point of view. And he agreed with me. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is bin Laden's vision, the whole reason he did 9-11 was to show the rest of the Muslim world, regardless of whether they were Shiite or Sunni, that the Americans could bleed and that you could basically push the gentle giant out of the region and reestablish not just a Sunni caliphate, but a pan-Islamic caliphate. Now, there was a division in al-Qaeda up in Iraq, because al-Qaeda in Iraq was going around killing Shiites first and then Americans second. But they were fixated on killing Shiites to start a civil war in Iraq. Bin Laden did not like that, because bin Laden wanted a unified caliphate. And so bin Laden's agents... This is not well known. One of his one of his couriers uh, surreptitiously fed the location of Al Zarqawi, who was the head of Al Qaeda in Iraq, to General McChrystal's unit that was hunting Zarqawi. And in 2006, we killed Zarqawi. 
But we didn't realize that our military was being used to settle an internal Al-Qaeda dispute. We were being used by bin Laden himself through proxies because bin Laden was worried that Zarqawi was going to divide the, the Islamist community along sectarian lines. And he very badly wanted a united front. And you are seeing that today play out after his death, wherein now you've had Iran very much become the mothership of this Islamist revolution for the wider region. They're a Shiite organization, and yet Sunni Muslim uh, Islamists are listening and paying attention to what the Shiites of Iran are doing. And that's very, very important to understand. Yes, this unity that has metastasized over the past few decades is is among the most troubling things because we should be dividing our enemies. Absolutely. You know, and Absolutely. and one of one of the catastrophes of our invasion of um of Afghanistan was that the Taliban was actually from my understanding and again thank god I have a geopolitical analyst in front of me to correct me if I'm wrong. But from my understanding, there were people in the Taliban who were actually quite upset at Al-Qaeda because they didn't know that Al-Qaeda was going to to commit you know, the terrorist attack on 9-11. And they were like, wait a minute, we've been providing you safe harbor in the mountains and you should have made us aware of this right. because now we're about to have an American invasion. Right. And by invading Afghanistan, one of the things that we did is instead of exploiting that division and that animosity between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, we drove them close together. Right. Well, that was a failure of George W. Bush and the neoconservatives uh, who were running the Bush administration. Ultimately, um, in fact, I, I know a CIA, I talked to a CIA agent who at the time was one of our point people on the ground in Afghanistan. And he tells the story quite openly about how mid-level leaders of Taliban were literally walking up to him saying, we're with the Taliban, we want to negotiate. He would relay that to his superiors in Washington, and the Bush administration had a zero-tolerance policy, and they would say, no, no negotiation. And what that did was that hardened Taliban resistance, and that actually brought the Taliban together uh, in an anti-American stance at a time, though, when we really could have been dividing even the Taliban against itself. And this is because we fundamentally have never taken the time not only to understand our enemies, but to understand the regions in which we are committing vast amounts of blood and treasure to. We think that, you know, we're so star-spangled awesome, we'll just show up and (laughs) the enemies will wither away. And unfortunately, these enemies have had, in many cases, hundreds of years of various insurgencies that they've waged and their, their grandparents have waged. And that was passed down the line. And so ultimately, the Taliban used to say the Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time. And in August 2021, they proved that true. And my fear is that a similar mentality dominates the wider Islamist movement. And I think that with with Joe Biden in charge, that's being proven that we may have all the watches in America, but it's the Islamists who have all the time. And I'd like to add one more thing. My friend Lee Smith wrote a great and disturbing uh, article in Tablet Magazine about a few weeks ago in which he asserted that those U.S. aircraft carriers that were deployed to the eastern Mediterranean were not you being used to deter 
Iran from seeking greater aggression against Israel in the wake of the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel, that they were actually being deployed to stop Israel from going full bore against Hamas Mm. because of how wedded to this insane Iran deal that the Biden administration is. And I think if you've looked at the, the news in the last few days and how Netanyahu has stayed his hand much more than he'd like to because of American pressure, I think Lee Smith is being proven correct, unfortunately. Before we continue, I want to tell you about my pillow. I use many my pillow products. I walk into work every day wearing the my slippers and then I quickly change into heels. I sleep on the my pillow in the Giza Dream bed sheets and I use my towels among other products and you can get many of these products at a discount if you use the promo code Hartman. MyPillow's latest deal is the sale of the year. For a limited time, you'll get 60% off of the aforementioned Giza Dream Bed Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You'll get a set for as low as $39.99 with the promo code Hartman. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Hartman or call 1-800-566-6745 and use the promo code Hartman. Along with this offer, you'll get deep discounts on all my pillow products including the my pillow mattress topper the my pillow towel sets and more you raise a very important point that that obviously these these regions these groups these countries these geographic areas are not the same i mean and that was one of the issues that we had in the early 2000s i mean there was this this revelatory but awful statement during the the Bush administration. I forget who said it, but they were talking about uh, this was in leading up to the invasion of Iraq. And someone came into the Oval Office and said, like, well, the the Sunnis and the Shias are fighting each other. And one of the Bush aides, not President Bush, one of the aides said, well, aren't they all Muslims? And it's like, oi. So we we need obviously to have an appreciation and understanding of the fact that that Again, these groups are not the same. However, as you as all, as you have also outlined, excuse me, there seems to be this this anti-Western unity, yeah. which has been facilitated by the actions of the United States and the West in the Middle East. But let's just let's just really take a moment and assess how grave of a threat this Islamism or Islamofascism is. Because again, yes, we've got Iran, and we've got Iran supporting those aforementioned groups, including Hezbollah and Hamas. And we have some kind of lukewarm countries, but how big of a threat really is this? How much is Iran really pulling the strings to try to spread really global jihad yeah. against the West? Well the, fir- well, the first thing I would say is, and I document this, I think, in chapter three or chapter four of the book. In December of 2016, there was a little reported at the time meeting between the leaders of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, specifically the now deceased General Qasim Soleimani, the leadership of Fatah, the leadership of Hamas, the leadership of Hezbollah. They met in Beirut and they officially decided they were going to basically take orders from the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps for tactical and strategic you know, advice and whatever and planning. And they were all going to pull their resources together so they can open up the third intifada. So there's one of your examples of these groups enmeshing and coalescing together under the leadership, however nominal, of the Iranians. Hmm. Then there's the larger issue of uh, what Iran is trying to achieve. So Iran 
through their terrorist proxies. And the term that I love is that they're the mothership of terrorism, of global terrorism, uh, through Hezbollah in particular, which is really an extension of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. They're not just based in Lebanon. This organization has an international footprint. They have warehouses all over places like Germany, England. They've got a huge and growing footprint in South America, in Mexico. They have a, basically a global network of black market supply chains in which they move not just people illegally, but they move a lot of different equipment and things that will help them in waging a protracted global terrorist struggle. Specifically, I was reporting this when I was writing at American Greatness. I reported it also uh, at 1945.com. Beginning last year, last November at this time, um, it was reported by Israeli intelligence that a shipment of uranium emanated from Iran, was heading to their proxies, the Houthis in Yemen, and it was intercepted by none other than al-Qaeda. And they, they lost tracking of that shipment. So what that means is that al-Qaeda intercepted and now has uranium, from Iran. A month after that, in December of last year, uh, Heathrow Airport authorities in London reported that they intercepted, quote, kilos of uranium coming from Iran, being shipped along these black market supply chains, uh, going through Pakistan, Oman, and ultimately ending up in Heathrow. And they were intercepted only because a detector detected the, the uranium. Um, and they basically said it was going to persons unidentified, probably Hezbollah agents, in England to do God knows what with. Now, let's just extrapolate. We, those are just two instances. You can rest assured, given the global ambitions of Iran's jihadist revolution, you can rest assured that not only are they moving Hezbollah all throughout the world, including especially through our broken southwestern border, to plant themselves in America, but they're also probably shipping kilos of uranium that are going undetected around the world up through our southwestern border. Now, why do I think they're doing that? I think they're planning to build dirty bombs in situ, in the actual targeted cities. That way they can't be intercepted as easily shipping a whole dirty bomb. And I think that the trigger point is going to be whenever Iran decides to order Hezbollah to open up a second front, against Israel, and the United States is going to have to get more involved uh, militarily. And once that happens, dirty bombs are going to start popping off in the West, probably in American cities. And, and that is an example of the global, unconventional power that Iran wields after 40-plus years of building up these terrorist proxies globally. What do we do about this? Obviously, that is the million-dollar question, and it is, it is impossible to answer. But let's let's actually let's start with Israel, because and again, I'm probably going to have to have you on the show again pretty soon to to continue this because we need a lot of time to to get into it. But one of my hesitations when when I, Israel was preparing the ground invasion of Gaza was mm -hmm. that. I feared that it was playing right into what Iran would want them to do. Absolutely. And that is not to say that I don't support Israel retaliating, right. Israel holding the Hamas terrorists to, to account. That is obvious. I want all of those blankety blanks dead mm -hmm. and tortured, uh, tortured and then dead. Um, but 
I, I feared that by by Israel invading, they were playing right into what to Iran wanted. They were not going to successfully eliminate Hamas because even if they got rid of every single terrorist in Hamas, Hamas is not just going to disappear. There are going to be more people right. that come up. And then now there's this, you know, refugee crisis. And there are these graphic images of Israel with Western weapons using them against Sunni Muslims. And it's created this whole blank show. Okay. So what, let's start with Israel before we kind of mushroom out to this greater question of what do we do about this, this Islamism and this Islamofascism? What do you think Israel should have done? Slash, what do you think Israel, Israel's plan should be going forward with regard to Gaza and keeping Hamas and other terrorist organizations at bay? Yeah. Israel has probably the region's most powerful indigenous air force. What they should have done, and they wouldn't do it because of what the backlash would have been, but they should have done to Gaza what the Allies did to Dresden. They should have basically firebombed every square inch and killed as many as they could. Leave no ground for the quarry to go to. And basically that would have forced the people in Gaza to leave because that's the problem here. Israel is being forced to live side by side with a group of people whose entire existence is predicated on annihilating Israel. Not just defeating Israel in war, but annihilating the individual people, as many as they can, in Israel. Now, that is a politically incorrect thing to say, but that is the only thing. They could have been done in 72 hours with that. And then they could have, they could have put their forces along the perimeter of Gaza to prevent any refugees from coming across. They should have redirected those refugees into Egypt and Jordan and let, the, let their fellow Arabs, the Palestinians' fellow Arabs, figure out what to do with them. Um, but they didn't do that because they knew the Americans wouldn't have their back because Joe Biden is a, is, you know, he's a quizzling. Um, but that's what they should have done. And because they didn't do that, you're absolutely right. They're playing into the hands of the Iranians. You know, October 7th happened three weeks almost to the day from when Netanyahu proudly stood up in the U.N. and held up a map. And it was entitled something to the effect of the New Middle East. Yes, the New Middle East. that map was showing, yeah, that map was showing how Israel and Saudi Arabia, in spite of Biden, we're finally coming together in the security alliance that the Trump administration would have concluded in their first year of a second term. But the problem was the moment he telegraphed that that was happening, this Hamas attack occurred. And it was designed in such a way, going after the most vulnerable populations in Israel, to evoke a military, hard military response from the Netanyahu government. And the moment that the Netanyahu government said they were going in hard to Gaza with over 100,000 troops to do like a giant Fallujah, the moment they did that, Riyadh picked up the phone to Netanyahu, uh, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, and said, we're not going to go through with our security alliance because you're going to be killing uh, Palestinian Arabs. Now, that wasn't because the crown prince is anti-Israel, That was because the crown prince is pro-West and he's a minority opinion in his country and he's worried, he's scared of his own people. And he's scared that if he gets too close to Israel now, as these images are coming out of blowing up hospitals and waging war and whatever from Israel, that his people will turn on him and overthrow him if he gets too close to Israel. Um, I think it's important to also note, though, I think last weekend or two weekends ago, Saudi Arabia shot down those missiles that were coming in from Yemen that were supposed to hit Israeli targets. So that should 
signal to people Saudi Arabia's leadership is not anti-Israel. They're just in a real pickle politically. Now, having said that, um, the, the Israelis are now in a bind because the harder they go in with troops, the longer and more protracted a ground war is, the more their forces are tied down in the south in Gaza, the greater of an opening that leaves for Hezbollah mm-hmm. with their massive arsenal of precision-guided munitions to you know, let loose on key infrastructure. Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah in 2020, and I quote this in my book, They've been building what's known as the Precision Project. They have a massive and growing arsenal of precision-guided munitions powered by or fueled by HMX, Octogen. That may have also, by the way, been the source of the Beirut blast in 2020. I have a whole chapter on that. But with those Octogen-fueled precision long-range missiles, Nasrallah wants to first hit the ammonium nitrate facilities in the port of Haifa to simulate a dirty bomb blast that would knock out Haifa as an economic hub for Israel. That would basically make Israel's economy very poor, very fast. So while Israel is committing itself to this Vietnam-style war in Gaza, you've got Hezbollah waiting for them to get totally bogged down and for the whole Arab world to turn on Israel. And that's when I think Iran will order Hezbollah to open up and destroy these key nodes. This could have been avoided or mitigated had Israel been fast, just bombing the heck out of uh, Gaza and then sort of p- playing cleanup in the aftermath uh, over time. But now it's dragged out. It's given everybody time to sort of go to their intellectual and ideological corners and hold fast. And now you see Netanyahu's government is being restrained even by the Americans. Let's say, though, that Israel did impose a Carthaginian peace on Gaza and just wipe them out with bombs. Well, the, the things that you just said, including, you know, Saudi Arabia breaking diplomatic ties with Israel, that surely would have happened. And I think if they had it, and obviously I'm, I was hesitant to have them do the ground invasion of Gaza, but I'm also hesitant to, to say that they should have just totally wiped out Gaza because then I think, and obviously I want to hear your thoughts, that Iran would have retaliated with a nuclear weapon. Um, maybe not with nukes because Israel would then retaliate and it would be game over. Um, I, do, I understand what you're saying, but think about it. Um, the worst thing to be seen in that part of the world as we is, is being weak and incompetent. If the Israelis had just raised Gaza in 72 hours, they would have probably suffered a diplomatic breakdown. They would have probably suffered through, you know, violence, but it would have been short-lived, I think, because the, the rest of the region would have been scared. What is Israel going to do next? And mm. are the Americans, what are the Americans going to do next? But now everybody knows the Americans are not going to stand with Israel in the long run. The, the Saudis are now being given an out to be weak when if Israel had done this, they would have probably been upset, but they probably would have been forced to reassess because the last thing the Saudis want to see is an Iranian military in the ascendance. And so they would have eventually moved in quickly to stop Iran from completing their dastardly plans for dominating the region. But now it's a slow bleed. And uh, I think it was Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters who wrote – um, you know, about war, he said, um, you're going to pay a bill. Do you want to pay the bill up, the butcher's bill up front, or do you want to pay it on the back end with compounding interest? In the West, we tend to want to pay it on the back end with compounding interest. And what that means is we have diminished returns as a result. Uh, in war, it's, it's not pretty. So war is brutal, war is hell, as Sherman said. We should, we should have let the Israelis and encouraged them to just go full bore fast 
in the beginning and use their strengths, which was air power, and then to mitigate from thereafter. But now this slow bleed, look, we've seen what insurgencies do. Counterinsurgencies don't work. We can't do it in the West very well. And my, my fear is that Israel is now being forced to make the same mistakes on a smaller scale that the United States made in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's going to have similarly devastating results. Mm. A few final questions before sure. our part two, <laughs> hopefully. Absolutely. What is going on with this $10 billion? What happened? Why are we giving indirectly or directly more money to Iran? And then what does this mean? Well, it's because of this obsession on the part of Democratic Party presidents with empowering Islamists and wanting to be seen as a, quote, fair broker, an honest broker in the Middle East. What these Democrats don't understand is that, A, I actually don't think that the Islamists are the most legitimate or the most favored group in the Middle East because the number one victims of Islamists tend to be fellow Muslims before anybody else. And so there is a great antipathy among many people in the Middle East toward the Islamist movements. It's just they're scared to resist them because it seems like they're in the ascendancy. So that's point one. It'd be nice if the Americans wouldn't get buddy-buddy with these groups. The second point is uh, the American uh, position in the region under the Democrats is not only are we going to support the Islamists, but we're going to actually try to harm our allies, Saudi Arabia in particular and Israel. What we should be doing is looking to the Trump administration. They are the only administration in my lifetime who's ever gotten the Middle East right. The Trump administration said we can't undo the past. The whole region knows we're pro-Israel and we're friendly with the Sunni Arab states, notably Saudi Arabia. Rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, as the Democrats always want to do, let's just reaffirm our conventional allies. We'll stand with the Israelis, we'll stand with the Saudis and the Sunni Arab states as, by extension, and we'll build an anti-Iran coalition. And that coalition will be used as a frontline containment of Iran's growing power while we are in the background applying maximum pressure diplomatically, militarily, economically. That is the strategy, by the way, that we used to defeat the Soviet Union in the Cold War. That is a strategy that worked bloodlessly, I might add. And I think it would be a strategy that would work in, against Iran. Unfortunately, we currently have a president, Biden, who does not believe this. He thinks that the best way, like Biden, I mean, like Obama and like Carter believed, the best way is to integrate the Islamist forces in Iran into the wider region, into the wider global trading network, to basically treat the regime in Iran like a normal regime, like a normal government in a normal country. This is a suicidal plan. It's the equivalent, and I hate using this comparison, it's overdone, but in this case it's apt. It's the equivalent of Chamberlain dealing with Hitler. Chamberlain could not understand Mm. that he was not dealing with a rational actor. He was not dealing with the Kaiser. He was dealing with, or Otto von Bismarck, he was dealing with an ideologue of two-dimensional thinking. And he was dealing with a fanatic in Adolf Hitler. And it's the same exact thing with the Ayatollahs and and the mullahs in Iran. They are fanatics. They believe that it is their... Um, calling to liberate the 12th imam from his occlusion. And in order to do that, they need to basically you know, instigate a nuclear world war. And so they are not rational actors, but the Democrats cannot fathom that. They do not comprehend it any more than Chamberlain could understand it when he was dealing with Hitler. So what was the $10 billion for? And is well, it going- ostensibly, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, please go ahead. 
ostensibly, according to the administration, it's money that we owed them because we took it from them in the you know during the the the, the period of troubles. Uh, and now, as part of us playing nice, we're going to give it to them for. And they they promise they'll use it for humanitarian reasons. I mean, that's what they say. But I think everybody with with a single brain cell knows, unless you're a Democrat and you're committed ideologically to this policy, I think everybody knows that this money, once it is released, will be taken by the Iranians and be repurposed toward funding their terrorist war machine. And it already has been. And they're going to wash it. You know, they're also Iran has a global money laundering program. They're going to wash this money, make it look legit. They're going to they're going to maybe throw a few dollars here and there to humanitarian causes just to appease the West. But the bulk of that money is going to go toward arms. It's going to go toward their ballistic missile program. It's going to go toward destroying Israel and pushing the Americans out of the region forever. It is not going to be used for humanitarian purposes. It is going to be used for greater warfare. The fact that this even needs to be explained really right. is indicative of the state of our country. Finally. Which is how decadent we are. Yes. It, yes. That's, that is a very apt word to use. Decadent. Finally, and this is hard again, because I have so many other questions, but I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about Turkey. And obviously yeah. I just wrote an article about Turkey yeah. in the American uh, mind and how I believe that Russia, China, and Iran, one of their main objectives is to try to sever Turkey from NATO and bring Turkey closer to their alternative non-Western hegemonic order. And I cited all of these horrible, horrible, horrible quotes from President Erdogan's speech on October 25th to the Turkish parliament about how Hamas are liberators, Israel is a war criminal, uh, to which he got chance in the audience of people saying, Alu Akbar, down with Israel. So Turkey's in a little bit of a situation. <laughs> Turkey's yeah. going through something right now. Yeah. What's your analysis of, of Erdogan and Turkey and their role in, in Islamism? Well, Turkey is yet another example of the failure that has become NATO in the post-Cold War era. Mm. Um, Turkey is the, the linchpin of NATO's southern defense perimeter. And it is, except in Ukraine, where it doesn't want Russia, but for the most part, it is aligned closely with Russia geopolitically. It is very much aligned with China geopolitically. It does not like Europe. It feels slighted. Uh, by Europe's refusal to allow Turkey into the EU. Uh, it also has this Islamist leadership, which, of course, is not conducive to the West. Uh, and then it also, under Erdogan, has a vision of rebuilding the Ottoman Empire. It goes back to that bin Ladenist idea of restoring the caliphate that collapsed in 1923 after the end of the First World War. Um, this has always been a longing of the Islamists, whether it's the Shiites or the Sunnis. They have long envisioned restoring a pan-Islamic empire. Now, the, uh, the, the, the Turks, being the heirs to the Ottoman, they are ethnic Turks, and they are mostly religiously Sunni Arab. And Erdogan believes, because of that, that gives him the right and the capability to not just restore the, the caliphate under his reign as the new sultan, but that he will then be able to balance the Sunni side and the Shiite side, particularly the Arab Sunnis and the Persian Shiites, against each other as the old Ottoman sultans did. And that is a geopolitical ambition of his going back to the very beginnings of his time in politics over the last 30 years. And so Turkey, the notion that Turkey is a dependable ally in the region, is obscene. 
They are working against the Americans. Since 2013, they've been buddy-buddy with Iran ever since the gold for oil scandal uh, in which um, the Turks were buying uh, Iranian oil and giving them uh, untraceable gold for it. Um, they are they, they have a shared antipathy of the United States, particularly when Democrats are in power. Erdogan hates Democrats. Um, and so right now, especially Turkey is especially opposed to the United States. Turkey is, for all intents and purposes, no longer an ally of the West. Uh, and he is leading an anti-American axis of resistance in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, and in fact, a couple weeks ago, after the October 7th attacks, Erdogan became so vicious toward Israel, the Israelis cut diplomatic ties with Ankara because of the fact that Turkey was obviously a threat. And Turkey has already said that if the war expands, if Israel's war against Hamas expands, they will deploy military units in support of the Islamists. Furthermore, when we deployed those aircraft carriers, Gerald R. Ford in particular, um, Turkey, with it, it has a modern navy. Turkey deployed its navy along with the Northern Cypriot Navy, they deployed them inside the Gerald Ford's area of responsibility in the Eastern Med, and they began conducting live fire exercises, which could have accidentally hit U.S. naval forces operating precariously close to the Turks. And I was always wondering at that point who would be who would be in violation of Article Five because NATO would then get involved. And so Turkey is the problem from hell. And under Erdogan, they're going to continue to be, and they're going to grow as a problem, the more that this Islamist issue becomes a key factor in the wider Middle East, of which the Turks want to dominate exclusively. A lot of reason for optimism, huh? (laughs) Well, as Mao always said, it's always darkest before it's completely black. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Oy vey. Well, you know, as as my dear friend, co-host, um, and boss, perhaps I don't know what Dennis Prager, uh, other mentor. other mentor, yes, you could throw in there other labels. As as Dennis Prager said, there are more forces for evil right now than for good. Yes, well, that and that's is, because of the leadership in America. Totally, totally. And an addition- election can change that. I mean, we didn't have these problems under Trump. So that's how close. Amen. But will people realize it, though? That is that is the thing. I mean, it it, it couldn't be more obvious. You were talking about anyone with a brain cell could be able to. I mean, the the the. I said unless you're a Democrat. Right. I know you did say that. I I caught it. I caught it. But the rapidity with which things have deteriorated, not just internationally, but domestically. I mean, will people get it? We'll see. I hope so, we'll but uh, you know the way the Biden administration manipulates economic data, social the way media. The media carries water. Yeah, for the Democrats, I mean, it's gonna look. It's the election. I think, and I said this to you before we started. The election is gonna boil down to a handful of swing states. It's gonna probably boil down even to a, a hundred thousand voters uh, in those swing states. That's who's gonna determine this thing. And so, um, my hope is that there's enough real people out there who may not like Trump and may think he's unstable and he's the mad king, but we'd rather have the mad king than Sleepy Joe, who's letting the world slip through his fingers. At least that's what I'm hoping for, because it looks like Trump will be the nominee. Um, And so the key things will be who is his veep 
And, uh, you know, can he overcome some of this negative perceptions of him among independent and moderate voters? But I think that he can because things are so bleak, no matter what the government says, people feel it. I mean, people feel that we're in a recession. Things are more expensive than they've ever been. Things are not getting better. So Americans vote with their wallets, I think. And I think that could be the thing that helps us get to prosperity and peace two years after 2024 if Trump is elected. We also have the problem of if there's going to be an honest election and uh, honest procedures. So, again, so much optimism. (laughs) So many reasons. I still cling on to hope, though. I know. I know you do. And thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for for your very important work and congratulations on your third baby girl. Brandon has three girls. My gosh. (laughs) And you're still coming on doing this with a smile. Your dark circles aren't too bad. (laughs) I look forward to chatting with you again, Brandon, and of course, seeing you on Twitter. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.